This morning, our scripture reading comes from James, the fourth chapter, chapters or verses 1 through 12, and it reads, Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. Do you not have, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship in the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives all the more grace, therefore it says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn the weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against one another or judges another speaks evil against the law and the judges and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Craig and worship team. Friends, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to James 4, where our reading came from today. Uh, and we're going to talk about the devil. So that'll be fun uh, for everybody but me. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to just give a couple of words of orientation for the day and for the season we're in. Um, particularly if you are a guest with us today. We are really glad that you're here and have chosen to worship with us. We would love to know that you're here so that we can let you know some of the things that are happening in our congregation that might intersect with where you are in your life. And so um, your worship order, your bulletin, has a yellow card in it. And this card has a couple of purposes. One, we can get to know you better. So if this is your first, second, or third time and you've never filled one of these out, we would love uh, to get just a little bit of your information. And later in the service, we're going to pass the offering plates around, and this can be your offering for the day. Also, on the back is a section for prayer requests, and this is really for anybody and everybody. Uh, we have a prayer team and our staff. We gather these up each Sunday, and then we uh, carry them throughout the week, especially at staff meeting on Tuesdays. Uh, we pray through all of these. And so uh, that's what this yellow card is for, and we would love in any way that you can help us make use of it to do so. Uh, We are in the middle of, we're really at the tail end now, of a study on the book of James. And uh, this Sunday is our last Sunday preaching and teaching on the book of James, because next Sunday we are going to enact the last part of the book of James. Um, You can read chapter 5 to get a sense of what I mean by that. But next week we're going to have a bit of a prayer service uh, in lieu of a longer teaching. So if you think, oh, I've been waiting for John Jay to preach for 10 minutes, that will be interesting. Next week is your week. 
for such a thing. Today, though, we're going to talk about the evil one. Um, it was like a year ago when we preached through the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, there's a section at the end. Uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. And we talked about it then. And it was a terrifying week of sermon prep, I remember telling you. This has not been the same kind of week because I'm pretty much figured out how to whip the devil. So we're good there. Um, that's not true at all. Yesterday was brutal. Um, but we are going to talk about the accuser today. And this little cover on your bulletin gets at that a little bit. So the name, uh, the devil or diabolos in the Greek is the word for accusing. And the word for accusing comes from this action right here, which is to throw something, usually an insult or some kind of divisive speech across a barrier at someone else. And so that's a little bit of what we have in front of us this morning. But we talk about the devil very rarely in churches anymore. Maybe if you did anyone grow up in like a fire and brimstone kind of church where maybe the language of evil embodied had a little bit more currency. Uh, but there's something that embarrasses us, I think, a little bit about the idea of the sort of like pitchfork and pointy tail version of the devil. Um, does anybody remember this? No, nobody. No. Oh, come on, folks. This is going to be a lot of, uh, of pop culture throughout the service. And so that will be my service to you. Fred's Got Slacks is maybe the very best SNL skit of all time. Y'all don't remember this. Do you remember it now? Ben Castle? No. So Will Ferrell plays the devil, and it's the episode with Garth Brooks. And Garth Brooks wants to have a hit song so bad that he's willing to sell his soul for the devil. And when he says that line, like, up pops Will Ferrell's character, who is terrible at guitar and terrible at writing songs. You should just go look up Fred's Got Slacks later. Not now. Not now on your phones. But there's something about the devil that like lends itself to this kind of parody uh even just saying the language of satan pops into your mind some image the same way as when we talk about god often we have a certain image in our mind and it usually involves a beard when we talk about the devil we have an image in our mind and it usually involves a goatee which are very different uh facial hair features one connotating goodness <laughs> That's right, he is playing your guitar. Uh, what do we do, though, with the way the Bible talks about the devil? Which is taking this antagonistic force seriously. In fact, doing battle with this antagonistic force in our world. And how can we recover? That's what we're going to try to do today, is recover some of this language. Uh, does anyone speak French? So now we've asked about SNL. So now for anyone in here who's a little bit deeply cultured, anyone in here speaking French that could translate this for us? I'll fear no evil. This is from a short story written in French that gets quoted by Kaiser Soze. Do you remember Kaiser Soze? From The Usual Suspects. That character does not hold up based on the last couple of years. Um, this here says... The loveliest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us that he didn't exist. Uh, I feel like that's a little bit about where we are these days. That we've made a joke of the demonic. We've relegated it to kind of primitive understandings of, of religion. And we have evolved past an understanding of 
uh, embodied evil. And it feels a little bit like we've been tricked. Um, the devil goes by a lot of names in the scriptures and in common culture. Uh, and this is how I imagine that the devil would write his name. That feels like something the devil would do, right? Your mom, um, Lucifer, in fact, gets a heart over the eye because Lucifer means like the angel of light. And so, you know, the, the, this antagonistic force does not always show up in our lives and in our society and in our systems overtly scary. It has a seductive quality to it. Ask somebody who's like, you know, neck deep in addiction and what that's cost them. And you get a sense of the way that seduction works. So the devil, Satan, Lucifer, yes, your mama, the evil one, the accuser, Beelzebub, liar, or just simply like not Christ or the Antichrist. All of these, this set of words is a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about the devil. Um, friend of mine, uh, former professor of mine, spent a lot of times on the street in Atlanta doing uh, ministry with folks who were uh, without housing. And there was a community there, uh, I believe called the Open Door Community, and they would often uh, share meals together. And so he's sitting there uh, having a meal with someone who'd been living on the streets. And the, the guy, you know, he's eating his food. He pops up and he looks at, at this friend of mine, Chuck, and he says, uh, you know, the devil's alive. And so Chuck, a little taken aback because they weren't exactly talking about the devil. And this guy just kind of throwing it out. And, and so he asked, like, what do you mean? And so the man who'd been living on the streets for a while tells Chuck, he says, just look around. And so Chuck looks around and realizes, seeing what he had always seen, right? There is a whole mess of people in this room eating with them. And there's no simple one explanation for why they are in the circumstances they are in, but they all happen to be of the same color skin and they all happen to have a similar set of struggles in their life. And the explanations we've come up with for things like homelessness are, are too small often. Uh, addiction or lack of housing that's fairly priced or laziness, we might say. But this, this man knew that there was something underneath all of that something anti-human that was at work. And his reading of the landscape made it so that he could see this antagonistic force at work in his life and in the lives of his friends. It's easier to start to ignore the reality of the evil one in our lives when our lives take on a color and texture that's just a little bit up here. But if you go down just a couple of layers into those who are suffering and at the margins, like Central America... Sub-Saharan Africa, you start to hear language about the demonic. And not necessarily because those folks are more primitive in their understanding, but because they, in fact, are maybe more cued into the struggle, just simply to survive. And the language of the evil one makes more sense. It's not like this is foreign to Jesus, though. You know the story. If you've got a Bible, you can turn. It's in several of the Gospels. Uh, but Mark chapter 4 is one place we could go. This quote right here is from Mark's version of the story. Uh, if you remember, Jesus appears at the beginning of his ministry. And what's the first thing that Jesus does in his ministry? Is he goes and he's baptized by John in the wilderness. 
And then immediately after his baptism, the text says, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. So the Spirit of God leads, but then once Jesus is in the wilderness, the accuser shows up to tempt. In Mark's gospel, it's a really quick reading, right? Tempted by Satan, was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Really compressed version of the story that Matthew tells. Jesus is enacting the exodus that the Israelites go through, moving through the wilderness and all the temptation that the wilderness presents, except for Jesus is able to go through these trials, meet up with adversity, and move through it without failing. And the way that Jesus does this is by picking up the tradition, in this case the Hebrew Scriptures, and handing it back to the devil. And at the end of this exchange, the devil leaves in one version of the gospel says, and waits for an opportune time to strike again. This character has some kind of life force in the gospels and is at work behind the scenes, moving society and moving systems and moving individuals. Sometimes even those who have really good intentions, like Peter, <clears throat> get behind me, Satan, he says. <clears throat> Jesus takes seriously the presence of the evil one. And if we're trying to be like Jesus, we probably are going to have to do the same. There's a more intense version of this story that shows up in the Gospels. And I, uh, I drew it intense. Uh, we'll go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. I'm going to read this section for you. This is from the Gerasene Demoniac. It's a fun name. There was a storm on the lake... And the disciples were afraid. And so Jesus is chilling, taking a nap. And he decides to intervene and calms the storm. And the text makes it sound like Jesus casts out something evil from the storm, exercises the spirits. And then they land on the other shore. And on the other shore, the country of the Gerasenes stepped out of the boat. There was a man who came out of the tombs with an unclean spirit and met him. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him, even with a chain. He'd been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains had wrenched apart and the shackles broke to pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So Jesus takes the spirits seriously, and the spirits seem to take Jesus pretty seriously. And then he says to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Who talks like that? Who just speaks those kinds of words? I do feel sometimes like our like quibbles and qualifications with speech when we know, we know that thing right there is evil. Not necessarily that person, although we're going to get to that in a moment, but a system, an air, an energy, we just know that is broken and full of despair. But our inability to say so with clear speech is just a function of our world today. But here's how Jesus speaks. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Oh, man. Imagine how much trouble I would get in if I said that to somebody in here. 
Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then this many inside this one cries out for mercy. Jesus decides to send these spirits into a herd of pigs. And the pigs run off a cliff and drown in the water like they do. Everyday occurrence in church. Um, And the people get really upset because their economy is disrupted by Jesus' exorcism. Ah. The demonic in this story has taken over this individual, driven him into the places where there is only despair, the place of death in the tombs, with no friends, no family, only himself and his thoughts and all of the different warring happening inside of him. And Jesus goes into this space and cleanses it in the same way that Jesus cleanses the sea. And something is happening here writ small with this one person possessed by all of this power. And all of this antagonism that Jesus is doing throughout all of creation. There's power in this story. Power for us to pick up and carry with us. But first we've got to understand what it is we are up against. And that's part of what Jesus does in the wilderness. Is get a good sense of what Jesus is up against. Everything that his family, that his tribe, that his nation has been up against for a long, long time. And so when we step into this story and we start to talk about the evil one, we are Stepping into some heavy stuff. To understand the way that it works is essential. So let's talk about the diabolical cycle. Okay? And this will maybe give us a sense of how we act and react within it. So here's what I understand to be the diabolical cycle. And this comes out of James chapter 4. We'll see if we can connect those dots all together. First, there is sin. Sin is another one of those words we don't say a lot anymore. But the Bible talks about sin a lot. And we trace sin back, and we usually talk about the fall, which usually is some way to understand what happens in the garden, which is that first story of when the serpent comes and tricks Adam and Eve. And actually, Genesis does not say that the serpent is the devil, but the way that the serpent acts, lies, deceives, and accuses feels very diabolical. So over time, tradition says that was probably the evil one at work in that story. It takes us a long time to understand the fullness and breadth of this antagonistic force that we live and are surrounded by a lot of the time. So there is sin. But it's sometimes hard to understand what is sin. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times here, and I'm going to say it 101 today. Uh, sin is often understood in its consequences. So in the story of uh, creation, in the garden, sin enters in by this act of hubris, this reaching out for what they were not supposed to reach out for, eating from that one tree they weren't supposed to eat from, gaining a certain set of knowledge and then a certain set of shame. In that shame, what happens? These primal humans, they move away. From everything they were supposed to be connected to. So God creates in this web of interbeing. Where we are in right relationship. right? We are at peace. The word for shalom. This language of wholeness. We were at one point whole. And that wholeness was at least in four primary relationships. At this point you probably could say them as well. Between ourselves and God. Fractures. We become isolated. And that is understood as moving east of Eden. Further and further and further away. Also, our relationship with creation is fragmented, so the consequence of sin is that the ground produces not food and vegetation, but thorns and thistles, and that humanity has to work it by the sweat of its brow. So what was supposed to be 
an easy relationship becomes one of struggle and suffering. We lose our relationship with one another. Eve says, that person made me do it. And then Adam says, that person made me do it. And then God says, listen, none of this is going to match anymore. You're going to hunger after one another in a way that puts you at odds with one another. And all of a sudden, humanity cannot find one another. The next story is the first murder. So we become isolated from each other and then also isolated from our own self-understanding. There is shame that enters into the picture and there's hiding that enters into the picture. And that is what sin does. And what we will see through the rest of scripture is that story told over and over and over again. So this isolation ends up being, in my understanding, the work of the evil one. To get us into tribes, into smaller and smaller atomized groups until we are the war of all against all. Does that sound familiar? That should sound familiar to us. As the people of God, we are trying to be good at a couple of things. At seeing beauty and goodness and grace in the world. Eyes to see and ears to hear. And also understanding the forces that work against goodness and grace and beauty. Isolation breeds fear. The one thing that Jesus says over and over again not to do, not to be, is afraid. Understanding that we live in a condition where we spend way more time than we want to being terrified of everything and everyone. Now, fear is a funky emotion. And the Bible says there's actually like one good place for fear. And where is that one good place for fear? Fear of God. Alone. And then that fear, that sacred humility, will then guide us with courage through all other kinds of circumstances. That's the way the Bible talks about fear. Um, but we are fearful people all the time. Uh, Marilyn Robinson, one of my favorite essayists and novelists, uh, in, a, in an article about violence, particularly about uh, weapons, she has a line in there. She says, I know two things to be true. Uh, one, that Christians are fearful people. She's commenting particularly on Christians in the West. Fearful people, fearful of losing power or prestige or uh, of clout or simply of institutions that matter to them. Um, and then two, uh, that, that fear is not a Christian disposition. And that we live in the tension of those two realities. That many people who claim to be followers of God are afraid of everything. And that Christians are not called to be afraid of anything but God. Do you feel the tension present there? That is sin working in our world and working in us. So isolation leads to fear. And where does fear lead? We're, we're moving through the cycle here. Fear leads to two distinct ways of being. And this is what James talks about toward the end of this book. Fear leads to scapegoating and leads to greed. And let me see if I can explain what that looks like in our world today. Uh, so scapegoating is this really beautiful way of understanding, well, nasty but very concise way of understanding how fear pits us against one another. It's the idea that if there is a bear at the door, the best way to survive the bear is to throw someone else outside. 
That's where, that's actually where we think it might have come from, is, uh, this need to, like, name someone else as evil, someone else, not some other force at work within our communities and within our lives, but another person or another group of people. They are the reason that society is broken. They are the reason that things have gone off the tracks. One group does this right now, right? With folks who maybe don't look like the majority of Caucasian Americans have looked for the last 200 years. And then some people do this with folks who have absorbed a really toxic understanding of, of what it means to be white. And, and, and in this situation, there can be demonizing of people and not of systems. In fact, there's a book that was written uh, years ago that my, my guy, Will Campbell, read and changed his life, which talked about what happened when southern white poor people and freed slaves got together and started talking and started dreaming about a society that might work. The beloved community is what the civil rights would talk about it to be. And you know what happened to that alliance, to that cooperation? The big evil that is at work moved in to divide them and say, actually, you two groups, y'all are enemies. And you should probably treat one another like your enemies. And this new arrangement was struck in the American South that I grew up in and that we all understand to be deeply, deeply broken. Somebody's got to be to blame. And scapegoating moves in to fill that void. Throw someone else outside so that we don't have to die. And that is bred out of fear. The other function is greed. If there's a bear at the door, you better get all the money you can get so you can get the biggest wall there is. So the bear can't get in. And it doesn't matter if there are other people outside. It just matters that you are safe. And the further and further, like the higher and higher the fences get, and the further and further you get from your people, from your community, the more alone you are and isolated you are. And in that isolation, you become more afraid. You look for more folks to throw outside and you look for more resources to build your barriers higher. Can you see how this thing becomes a cycle? Isolation is the function of sin and isolation breeds fear in us. And in that fear, we act in all kinds of of diabolical ways. This is what we are always resisting. These forces. And then it becomes like a feedback loop. And these, in fact, scapegoating and greed are the two things that sandwich in this little bit of James. Chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right before this section is the language about taming the tongue about the dangers of divisive speech, about what it means to tear one another down, this idea of scapegoating. And then in chapter 5, it talks about wealth and greed. Come now, you rich people, weep, mourn, and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. This is scary stuff. You've laid up treasures for the last days. Listen. The wages of the laborers have mowed your fields, which you've held back by fraud. They cry out, and the cries of the harvest that have reached your ears, O Lord of hosts. 
You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. This is not simply a condemnation of wealth. This is a condemnation of wealth gotten by means of exploitation. This is principally this pattern that develops in God's people where a few people rise to the top in power and they begin to enslave their own brothers and sisters, usually through debt accumulation and then the taking of ancestral lands into larger and larger estates. And so there are a few with a lot of land and then there are a lot with none. And this system is unjust and it's what the prophets rail against. But that is what greed does is it starts to make everyone around you look like a threat to your stuff. And so this is what James warns about. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And what are we resisting? It is these two urges to speak ill of humanity. And then to assume that we are going to escape this humanity. The Bible has a way of talking about it. Pharaoh's heart condition. By the way, I had a slide that just said PhD on it for Pharaoh's heart disease. And it was so terrible feeling to put that up that I deleted it. Um, but I feel like I have, to, I have to confess that to you, that I had a bad pun in here before we walked out today. Uh, <laughs> Pharaoh is sort of becomes um, a collaborator, a partner with this antagonistic force in the world. And at one point, later on in the scriptures, Pharaoh becomes like an avatar for what it means to be overtaken by this evil impulse. Just as a quick reminder, Pharaoh, in charge of Egypt, Egypt has an economy built on scarcity, on the floodplains of the Nile, so you never know when you're going to have enough grain. And there had been famines at different points in their history. And so they had developed a sense of accumulation and hoarding. And at some point, they had brought in a nation known as the Hebrew people or the Israelites. And this group of people had grown in numbers, had become very, very uh, fertile. And in this increase, Pharaoh saw them as a threat and as the problem for their community, as the scapegoat. And... Uh, the answer to that is to enslave the Hebrew people and to make them fill up the storehouses with grain, which brings us to the greed side of the equation. And the way that the Bible talks about Pharaoh's inner condition is a hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And this is where we start to really understand what sin and the evil one can do. It can make us deeply inflexible, lacking in compassion and empathy, unable to move inside and at first it says that Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's own heart. That this is Pharaoh's interactions, resisting over and over again what could have been a different story. But at some point in the story, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's a very troubling section, theologically. What does it mean to, that God would harden someone's heart? But the easiest way to understand that is at some point your participation in broken patterns will in fact break you deep, deep, deep down to where your new instinct becomes that broken action in the world. God just allows what was already on its way to come to a natural fruition. And Pharaoh locks down in a death pattern. 
becomes an anti-human force in the story. And it looks exactly like scapegoating and greed. So what do we do? What do we do in a world that is suffused with all of this pain and suffering and brokenness? That is often what the world looks like, especially if you turn on the news, because like the news, that's what they sell, is, is, are those kind of stories. Um, one of the reactions for a lot of folks is to just make peace with it. To meditate at the river and say, like, all of this is happening around me, and, and I just don't want to get infected by it. So a sort of resignation takes over. That's a little bit like a stoic impulse. And stoicism, like there's something to be said for not lashing out, right? Not reacting in kind, not feeding the beast. But actually, that is not the language of the New Testament. If we're going to take evil seriously, then resignation is just not an option. So stoicism has to give way to something else. And this is the language that the New Testament gives us over and over again. It's the language of resistance. It's an active pushing against. The the Greek word is antihistame, which means to take a stand against. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. This is an active posture. There are times where it feels like that diabolical cycle that we are powerless to do anything about it. That what we end up submitting to is just the effects of a broken world on our broken insides. maybe moving towards cynicism or toward despair, and to rally, to wake up an inner resistance, is to claim the posture of Jesus. In fact, resistance is the gift that Christ leaves for his followers. And this is where I really start to feel something in my gut about what it means to be a Christian. And what makes me very excited to be part of this community, also a bit like heavy with responsibility, is that we are not simply called to like get good grades on our moral tests or to have the right answers or simply not to screw up. But in fact, we are called to fight. And we get wrong a lot of the time who the fight is against. So we turn on one another. Or we turn on some other subset of our culture and say that they're the problem and that they're the reason. Go talk to any denomination in this country, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopals, and they have these inner fights going on of who the demons are in their midst. But we have, in fact, been given a struggle to enter into. And a lot of what we do in this space together is we make one another ready for that struggle when it arrives. Not if it arrives, but like when it arrives. It's a heavy task, but it is essential. It's crucial to our life together. This language of resistance. 
end of Mark's gospel, chapter 16, as Jesus is about to leave his disciples to carry on the work. It says he appears to them and says to them this. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. Not even just to humanity. To everything that has been isolated and alienated. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Okay. Let me pause for a second. We're in an Anabaptist church here, and one of the like central convictions as Baptists is that we are a believer's church, which means we don't force anyone into this space by coercion, but you are invited into this space by confession, by confession of faith. And so we call ourselves a believer's church. So if you're here with us because you're curious, then I want to let you know what it is we're moving toward. And if you're here because you are committed, then this is the commitment, right? And these are the signs that will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. How many people have participated in an exorcism in this room? I'm imagining not a ton. I had an opportunity to participate in one of these last year. Uh, It's wild, and I feel wholly unprepared. The first thing that is the sign is they, in my name, will cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues, this new speech. They will pick up snakes in their hands, and they will drink any deadly thing. If they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Uh, There is a tendency to spiritualize this passage and to think that it means something a bit stripped of its power. But what if it means what it says? That there is a force, a set of forces at work in our world that are antagonistic to human flourishing. And we might be able to get really good at identifying those forces. But what would it mean if we, in fact, were called in power to deal with that? To cast them out, to cleanse them? That's, that's intense. I don't want to ask the question, who wants to do that? Because I'm scared about the number of hands that we would see. There's a reason that whenever I prepared this week, I was terrified. This is not like neutral stuff, and it's not gentle. It's, it's visceral, gutsy. There's a, uh, there's a little essay I love that I read again this week about um, the real danger that is pressing in on the church. And, and the essay is uh, like, like, what's the real danger, um, snake handlers or the institutional church? And Will Campbell wrote it, and he's talking about how um, easy it is, and we've seen a lot of this on TV lately, to make fun of primitive uh, Baptists and other religious folks and charismatic traditions who still pick up actual serpents in their services. Have y'all seen these on TV before? Like rattlesnakes and copperheads, and they've got them in the boxes, and then they, they'll pull them out and they'll dance with them, and they'll, they'll claim victory over them. There is something that kind of prickles us, and we think, like, we are not those kinds of Christians, because that looks silly and superstitious. And, and fine, like, that maybe is, like, a, a, not a deep enough understanding of what's happening there, but Campbell says, like, This unlettered brothers and sisters in these rural communities, they pick up death and do not fear it. All the while, he says, many of our lettered brothers and sisters who spend plenty of times in seminaries and high steeples pick up much more dangerous serpents and coddle them like pets, not understanding the deadly threat that they pose. 
These are the signs that they will know, those that believe. Not that they flee from the struggle, but enter into it. When they bring out the snakes for these services, there'll be the wooden box there with serpents in it. And often the thing that will accompany that, the words the preacher will say, uh, there's death in this box. And there's something clarifying about that kind of speech that I miss. To be able to name for people when they're moving in a path, there is death at the end of this road. And you don't have to choose it. You can resist. You are not helpless in the face of the evil one, but have been given power. That is our inheritance as God's people. That we might be able to do what Jesus did. And Jesus' signs were healing and casting out demons expelling the evil, cleansing it. I know, I have a good authority from friendships that I have with all of you, that some of you are very good at naming the antagonistic forces at work in our world. Really, really good at it. And then calling us into a posture of resistance. The other way that the New Testament talks about evil, and the evil one is the prince of this world. <clears throat> it's not for naught that we feel besieged often. To develop a vocabulary that might be able to hold the brokenness we feel, and that might be able to challenge it with language of hope and resistance. That's part of our task. We are able to do this only because we find ourselves in Christ. Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things. Christ shared the same things. That through death... He might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is, the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by, and here's the language again, the fear of death. For it's clear he didn't come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And then this line. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Jesus knows what this feels like. That battle in the wilderness with the devil, like we are there at multiple times in our weeks with some version of those temptations to claim power, to claim prestige, to assume that we make our own way in the world to name with greater clarity who our enemies are so that we can exclude them, to name the enemy within in such a way that we begin to hate ourselves. We know what this feels like. And Christ knows what this feels like. And the temptations, when it says that the devil, after tempting Jesus, withdraws for an opportune time, 
those words carry a lot of foreboding because when does that opportune time show up? If not at the cross. And at the cross, one of the ways the early church understood the crucifixion is the devil taking the bait. Assuming that the devil had won. And so death swallows Jesus. Hurling all kinds of accusations, treating Jesus like the ultimate scapegoat. Whipping the people into a frenzy until they are crying the same kinds of language that the evil one has given them. Until the entire population breathes this antagonistic word. And Jesus absorbs it and absorbs it and absorbs it and forgives it and does not lash out. But falls deep into, even into hell. Jesus knows and shows us what it looks like to resist. And the early church understands this resistance as tricking the devil. Julian of Norwich talks about this resistance as laughing at the devil. Whenever baptisms used to happen in the early church, you would take off your worldly clothes and you would enter into the baptismal font naked. And in baptism, you would first be exercised of the unclean spirits and then the priest would spit in your face and then baptize you and make you new and then you would put on the white baptismal robe and you would walk out into the world made new laughing at the devil spitting in the devil's face that's the language of the early church here's what it sounds like today chance the rapper says what does it feel like to give satan a swirly there's something like really really rambunctious about that language Seeing the evil at work in the world and saying it has no power and dominion here. That there are limits and there is protection. So like last week, I want to end with a reading of scripture. It's the same way that Jesus answers the accuser in the wilderness. It is tempting when we start to think about this divine struggle to look at people as the problem, as the source of the evil, rather than as those caught up in it. And slavery to the fear of death is the way that the scriptures talk about it. And so this is the passage that we should come back to over and over again. It's from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Resisting the devil's methods. As we leave this teaching time, yeah, I want you again to sit with these words. You feel like you're in the struggle. A lot of us do. And are wholly lacking in provisions for the fight. Or exhausted. Or isolated and feeling like you're the only one. What is on offer today and what is always flowing from God's heart is strength and power for the work to do in the world. So I'm going to read this section for us a few times. Again, in this practice of Lectia Divina, of, of divine listening and reading. I'm going to ask that you sit with it. And at the end of this time, we're going to come out and we're going to sing again. Starting in verse 10. Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all these, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the spirit, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. To that end, keep alert and always persevere and pray for me also, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to be made known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. She didn't notice one thing in this reading. A reminder that you are not one another's enemy. That our struggle is not against the enemies of flesh and blood. And to aim this resistance with some kind of precision. Here again this reading. Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints Pray also for me that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. In this third reading, I'm going to ask if you would pay attention to how little weapons we are given in this struggle. In fact, most of the aggression and the violence is done from the devil's side to us. The flaming arrows is the way that it talks about it. And the only weapon that we are given is the sword of the word of God. It is meant for healing. The way of Christ is the way of peace. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. And with all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then pray in the spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all of the saints. Pray also for me, that when I speak, I may be given a message to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. One last reading together before we sing. I want you to notice as we leave this space of teaching together, what it feels like to live in a world that is set off and against your own flourishing. How tempting it is to name enemies when looking people in the eye. And yet there is at work in our systems, in, our, in the air that we breathe, that antagonism. And you can feel it is caught, has infected entire ways that our world works. Imagine the power of what it would mean to stand in front of those systems and institutions and cleanse them of the spirits that work against our flourishing and to invite them back into a redemptive posture. This is the power we have been given. One last time and then we will sing together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication to that end, be alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. And pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Amen.